0: time to read from God's Word. We're going to read together from uh, 2 Samuel. We're continuing our series in uh, 2 Samuel, and this time we're in chapter 6. If you're using a red church Bible, you're going to find that on page 258. 258, 258 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, 1 Samuel focused very much on Saul and what proved to be a pretty disastrous first reign over Israel. And after a pretty long wait, finally David has ascended to the throne, first over one section of God's people, but now all Israel is united under his rule and reign. So we're beginning to see now what kind of king David will be. And 2 Samuel 6 uh, is a place where David needs to learn a vital lesson about how to relate to the Lord. 2 Samuel 6, and we're going to read. Uh, the whole chapter beginning of verse 1 David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel 30000 and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bala Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled." And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. It means bursting forth upon Uzzah. You'll see that in your footnote at the bottom probably. Verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. We're going to pray together for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you that if we want to hear you speak, we just need to Open this book, and if we want to hear you speak out loud, we just need to read it out loud. Thank you that we've heard you speak. Help us now, please, to understand it, to believe it, and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are you afraid of? I spent uh, two months of this year traveling in Australia, and on uh, one rainy day in Sydney, we took shelter in their Natural History Museum. Now Australia has something like the top ten deadliest animals in the world, and, and there was an exhibit along those lines advertised as we walked in. So of course I headed straight there. I was rubbing my hands together at the thought of all the horror stories I was going to read—a a single nip from this redback funnel-web hairy death monster will kill you in under five agonising seconds. I couldn't wait. Now imagine my disappointment to discover that. Uh, some jobs worth, uh, presumably at the tourist board of Australia, had persuaded them to play down the seriousness and the deadliness of those animals. And the info board said things like, uh, "Sure, it's it's dangerous if it bites you, but it's so shy, it won't even make eye contact with you. You could keep it as a pet. You'd outlive it, probably." Ah, sure, this shark here has teeth bigger than your head, but you know these days all the sharks are vegan. As long as you're made of meat, it's all going to be fine. Now, I had a problem with that for two reasons. First, boring. Boring? Give me the drama. I've come to be scared. Why else have an exhibit like that in the museum? But second, I had a problem with it because there are some things that you should be scared of. You know, being scared of lethal snakes isn't an irrational phobia. It's sanity. There's a reason that Aussies check their shoes before they put them on. They like being alive. Sometimes fear is the rational and logical response. And 2 Samuel 6 here tells us that no one and nothing is to be feared like the Lord God Almighty 2 Samuel 6 is all about how to live before the Lord. Have a look down and see that phrase with me, would you? There in verse 14, before the Lord, then again in verse 16, and then twice in verse 21, and I might have missed one or two. King David has just become king over all Israel. His reign is going to stand or fall on this question How will he live and rule before the Lord? How will his people live and rule, Live before the Lord under his rule? And the same is true, isn't it, for us? You know, the Bible teaches us an absolutely astonishing truth. It tells us that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is here. The Bible describes the church as the temple of the living God. His presence is here. We meet together before the Lord. Tomorrow, if you're a Christian, if you go to work, If you stay at home, you go to school, wherever you are tomorrow, you go as a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. You will live every second of the day tomorrow before the Lord. Now, what difference should that make to the way we live, apart and together? Two things this evening. Firstly, it looks like living with careful fear. Careful fear. This is verses 1 to 13. Now, that, um, that Australian tourist board, Jobsworth, clearly didn't write this chapter. Because we get here, don't we, one of the most shocking episodes in the whole of the Bible. A man touches a box to steady it, and God strikes him dead. Verse 7, notice, calls what Uzzah did an error. Apparently, it's a hard word to translate, but still, errors don't usually deserve death. One of the, um, shall we say, joys of having a teacher for a mum is that you're always in school. If your parents are teachers, you can probably relate. At school, you're in school, and at home, you're in school. I mean, that's not totally fair on my mum, actually. But she did used to give me uh, fairly attentive help with my homework, and then she'd set me her own homework. Now, I've always been a reader, so English was fine, but maths, not so much. I wasn't terrible, but I just couldn't concentrate. I found it so uninteresting. And so I made lots of silly, avoidable errors. And when I made an error, what do you think my mum did? Did she fetch a spade and start digging my grave in the back garden? Well, of course she didn't. She just asked me to do it again, and again, and again, and again. But what Uzzah does here is so much more serious than fluffing your 12 times table. He didn't just touch a box. This wasn't just a box. If we could look at it, we'd see that it was special just by its design, covered in gold, angelic beings on the lid, and inside the Ten Commandments, the very words of God, this box was a symbol of something much, much bigger than itself, a little bit like a wedding ring. You know, a wedding ring, it's just a metal circle, isn't it? But those of us who are married if you drop your wedding ring down the sink during the washing up you're getting it back whatever it takes you're getting it back because it means something more it's it's a symbol of a of a relationship that matters to you in a much greater way that was the ark in fact chapter 6 verse 2 would you have a look with me it reminds us what it symbolized notice what it's called the ark of god which is called by the name of the lord of hosts it represented his name, his perfect holy character, his matchless reputation, and then notice his power, the name of the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of heavenly armies, the one at whose voice myriad celestial marines would snap to attention. His name, his power, and notice his rule, the name, verse 2, of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The angels, that is. The, the, people, the people were to think of God Almighty seated on his glorious throne in heaven with, as it were, his feet on the ark as his footstool on earth. This is a royal box. It's the ark of the Lord God Almighty, the holy Lord of hosts. So how Israel treated this ark here was how they treated the Lord himself. If they were careless or casual with the ark, they were being careless or casual with the Lord. And that is a very, very dangerous thing to do. When I was growing up, my friends and I used to go to this epic church bonfire every year. I've probably mentioned it before in a sermon somewhere in the archive. Everyone in the church turned up for it, in my memory at least. It was out on a farm in the countryside, big barbecue, kids with sparklers, adults with sparklers. But the highlight was this ginormous bonfire which drew out all of the engineers in the church who would go to great pains to arrange the pallets in just such a way so that the air would rush through the the corridors and channels between the pallets to set the bonfire ablaze as fast as possible. It was huge. You must have been able to see that bonfire for miles around, it was magnificent. Now, a fire of that kind of height generates, of course, serious heat. And silly boys like me like to get as close to the fire as possible before our eyebrows were singed. So parents of silly boys like me would have to sternly warn us, don't go near that fire. And then there was a boundary rope And the rope sent the same message. Don't go anywhere near that bonfire. No closer. And if I'd been dumb enough to step over that rope and to start walking towards the fire, I don't think I would have got more than about three paces before someone either yelled at me or rugby tackled me to the ground to save my life. You don't mess about with fire, you don't mess about with the presence of the Lord. It's interesting how um, sort of new agey, maybe self-styled spiritual people, and people who don't know the Lord Jesus personally, will sometimes talk about how peaceful they feel in what they think to be God's presence. And it's interesting to compare that with the experience of people in the Bible who come as much as you can face to face with the living God. Because it isn't peace they feel. Did Moses feel peace when God from the burning bush commanded him to take off his shoes for walking on holy ground? Or what about the prophet Isaiah at his commission? We thought about that earlier when he caught caught a glimpse of God on his throne. And the angels didn't even dare look at the Lord. And and who sang, holy, 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 Lord God almighty. And the prophet cried out, what? Oh, I'm so peaceful. Peaceful. Woe is me, I am undone. I am a sinful man, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Peter didn't feel much peace, did he, when he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Away from me, for I am a sinful man. The Apostle John didn't feel very much peace when he sees the Lord Jesus in his risen holy glory there in Revelation 1. He doesn't pull out a deck chair and a cocktail. He falls at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. This is no fragile granddad in the sky. The ark here represented the holy presence of the holy, holy, holy Lord. And to be casual or careless with him would be a deadly mistake. Which, of course, is why the transport of the ark had to be done so carefully. We're not going to turn there, but you can check this later. Numbers chapter 4 lays it all out for us. It describes how only the priests could carry the ark. And in fact, they couldn't touch the ark itself. They carried it on poles so that they had no direct contact. And the ark and all the sacred objects were covered with cloths like your furniture when you're painting the living room. Everything covered. Carrying the the ark was like carrying radioactive materials. The poles, the the cloth, the priests, they all shouted to you, don't mess with this, don't touch. And Uzahir must have known it. He must have seen too, or at least heard about what the ark had done to the Philistines when they stole it. You remember that story? Those of us who were here back in 1 Samuel 5, as we saw the Philistines pass the ark around like a pass the parcel game, in their panic, desperately trying to get the ark away from them, or the men of Beth Shemesh, remember them in 1 Samuel 6, struck down for looking at the ark in the wrong way. So as we read this, if we're reading this in the light of the scripture, we should be thinking to ourselves, Uzzah, what are you thinking that you would just reach out and touch it? He grabs the earthly representation of the glory of the Holy Lord Almighty, and we're told here God's anger was kindled like a fire, verse 7, and he was struck down where he stood. You don't mess about with the presence of the Lord, not if you want to live. Of course, when we read a story like this, we will think to ourselves, well, that was the Old Testament. Well, do you remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They played about with the Lord, they lied about their money, and they were dragged out dead. And what was the response? What was the the impact on the crowd? Acts 5 verse 5, great fear came upon all who heard of it. Hebrews 12, verse 28, New Testament, not old. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, not was, is. Well, this episode makes a real impression on David, doesn't it? It's not clear... Immediately why he's angry in verse 8, though we could speculate. But it's very clear why he's afraid in verse 9. See that verse 9? David was afraid of the Lord that day. Now, if you were David, be honest, would you take the ark into your care? And how did he persuade Obed-Edom to take it in verse 10? How did that conversation go? And yet he takes it and look what happens verse 11 Obed-Edom was blessed and so David has a change of heart he sends for the ark and and you can just imagine the risk assessment they would have written this time around pages and pages and pages of precautions carefully pouring over numbers and all the other regulations in the Old Covenant the detailed briefing of the priests guys do you know what you're doing do you know what you're not doing The care with the cloths, the route marked out to the inch, no bumps in the road, every tiny detail of the journey carefully planned, and out goes the king rejoicing. We're going to come back to that because that might not be what you expect given what's happened. But then look at verse 13. Look at what David does in light of what he's seen. Verse 13, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now that is careful, isn't it? It might mean that they only did it once. I wonder though whether it doesn't mean they did it every six steps. Think about that. One, two, three, four, five, six, stop, sacrifice. One, two, three, four, five, six, stop, sacrifice. If that's what it's saying, this journey took ages. That procession crawled along. But David has learned, at least for now, You don't mess about with this God. He is a holy, holy, holy God. This is careful fear. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Well, look, first of all, for the person who's looking into Christianity and trying to make sense of it, this is helpful for you because it's introducing you to what God is like. He isn't a weak, frail granddad in the sky, He is the God of blazing holiness and glory. And once that starts to make sense to you, his his majesty, his unparalleled beauty, his brilliance, his complete sinlessness and opposition to evil, then you'll begin to understand what the Bible means when it talks about sin, and then what it means when it talks about forgiveness, and what it means when it talks about the cross. In fact, it's the cross, isn't it, that teaches us what God is like and what it means to fear him. If you want to see what God's holiness is like, look at the cross. If you want to see his complete goodness, his perfect opposition to evil in every form, go to the cross. If you want to stand in awe and reverence at the depths of his love, and the height and the breadth of his grace to sinful and wicked people like us, go to the cross. As Jesus dies there on the cross, God is putting his glory on full display so that we would learn to fear him as God and trust in him as Savior. Now, the right fear of God at the cross is where the Christian life begins for all of us. And right fear of God and careful fear in the way we live, of course, is how the Christian life continues. At 1 Peter chapter 1, for example, calls Christians to conduct ourselves with Fear. It's not the the, the terror that makes us run away from God, but the fear which makes us run to Him, that trusts Him, that makes Him the center of our life, everything we think, do, and say. The Chapter 3 of 1 Peter calls us to honor the emperor, but fear God. Those, Those words are very carefully chosen. Honor the emperor, yes, but save your fear for the Lord God Almighty. And we've heard Hebrews 12 already. We're to worship God, With reverence and awe. And we know, don't we, that that worship goes beyond singing. It means living every part of our lives in the fear of the Lord, a carefulness about the way we live, a carefulness about sin and holiness, a a sacrifice every six steps kind of carefulness, a carefulness about what we watch on TV or where we go online, the, the words we speak to each other. The thoughts that we let linger in our minds, the way we relate to each other and, of course, to the Lord, the, the careful and comprehensive war on sin, which risks being called legalism. We are very quick, aren't we, to call carefulness in obedience legalism. We're terrified of becoming Pharisaical. But the Pharisees' problem wasn't that they were too careful about obedience. It was that they weren't careful enough. They weren't careful enough to realize that they couldn't do it and that they needed forgiveness in Christ's cross. You remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? He said, you strain out the gnat, but you swallow the camel. And there's a hard picture to illustrate, but you get the point? It's Like if you're making a Pharisee a cup of tea, and you're making loose leaf tea, and you're pouring it through one of those tea strainers, the Pharisee will spot any tiny speck that gets through that tea strainer into your mug of tea. But as they raise it to their their lips, you need to imagine there's this great hairy four-legged animal sticking out of the mug. How can you miss that? It wasn't that they were too careful. It was that they weren't careful enough. The King of Kings is here with us. By his spirit, he dwells within every Christian. And that must make a difference, mustn't it? We must take him seriously. And that means living in careful fear. And then secondly and finally it means living in exuberant joy. Exuberant joy, 14 to the end. Look, David must have been quite a sight, mustn't he? Look at him there in verse 14. Is this what you thought fear looked like? Fear of the Lord, verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, right? This isn't British male dancing. I'm allowed to say this because this is all I've got, right? Awkwardly shuffling side to side, hoping that no one else is looking at you. This reads, at least, doesn't it, like full-bodied, limbs everywhere, out in public, high energy, and bursting with joy. And he's got a band. Did you see that back in verse 5? We've got lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And then verse 15, throw in a brass section. It's a carnival. David's fear of the Lord looks wonderfully joyful. Now, for some of us, and maybe for some churches, this might be quite awkward. It all seems a bit too happy. And we look at David and we think, David, you should take the Lord more seriously. As though holiness, this kind of careful obedience and happiness are like chalk and cheese or oil and water. Very occasionally over the years I've preached at churches that felt a bit like that. Maybe you've been to one. And the badge of belonging is that you should just never smile. They might be joyful, but their joy is buried so deep down in their heart that you'd need heavy machinery to dig it up. And a good church service is one where everyone's morbid and somber and everyone leaves just as glum as they came in and the more like a funeral it feels the better but David's joy here is more like the joy of a wedding just as we were thinking about this morning just as some of us were celebrating yesterday Anna and Daniel got married in this room yesterday hence these beautiful flowers It was a serious event, serious promises were made about a serious relationship, but it was serious joy, a serious celebration of something absolutely wonderful, and that's what David's dancing about here. He's not dancing because he doesn't take God seriously, he's dancing because he does. He's serious about God's love and God's goodness and God's grace, his forgiveness, his holy presence among those people of all people of the world. That the ark should come into David's capital city makes makes him dance for joy. And isn't his presence with us still a reason to rejoice? Think about the coming of the Lord Jesus again. We thought about this this morning. Where did Jesus' first public miracle in John's gospel happen? A wedding. Not an accident. This week we were looking at Mark 2 in preparation for Sunday morning. Remember the question that Jesus was asked? Why don't your disciples fast like everyone else? What was the answer? Because the bridegroom had come, not the funeral director, the bridegroom, the son himself has come. It wasn't time to fast, it was time to feast. This is the time for exuberant joy. Pick up the cake and eat it. Well, while uh, David is dancing before the Lord, this lady, Michal, is furious. There she is, verse 16. Did you spot her, David's wife? She's standing in the window. Saul's daughter, she's looking down at her kingly husband dancing in his underwear, and she despises him. Why? Well, remember who her dad was. Saul was a king who took himself very seriously, and the Lord not nearly seriously enough. Saul would never have done this not if it's left up to him, far too self-absorbed, self-exalting, self-important. So she sees David's serious joy in the Lord here, his self-forgetting, self-abasing, God-glorifying joy in the presence of the Lord, and she cannot understand it. She hates it. And David tries to explain to her there in verse 22. See his response? verse 22 why is he doing this he says i i will make myself yet more contemptible than this and i will be abased in your eyes in other words i'll happily get lower i don't mind this isn't about me it's not my glory that matters i fear the lord and his presence with his people makes me want to dance Talked about Pharisees. I think this lady might have made quite a good Pharisee, don't you? Do you remember Simon the Pharisee? Simon's are always Pharisee, aren't they? Luke chapter seven. Remember that story that Simon the Pharisee watches a woman pour priceless perfume over Jesus' feet, and the expression on Simon's face is pure confusion. He cannot understand it. What a waste of money! What are you doing? He cannot understand the sheer joy she feels at being in the presence of the Lord Jesus, her Savior. Here's the point. Christian joy comes not from taking God less seriously, but far more seriously. Taking his love for us seriously. The privilege of his presence among us seriously. The wonder and the grace and the forgiveness of the cross seriously. You take him seriously as your savior and king and it'll make you want to dance for joy and other people won't understand it our culture thinks that the route to joy is to take ourselves more seriously we're supposed to love ourselves and indulge ourselves and express ourselves and david's example says no forget yourself take god seriously and rejoice so as we look at david here dancing in his linen ephod Let's ask ourselves, is our joy in the Lord Jesus exuberant like his? Is it obvious enough to confuse those around us? Can I speak to my fellow Brits? Are we too British to show how happy we are to know the Lord? Is our joy purely a kind of private, quiet joy? You don't have to dance, right? It's a great relief to me. I'm not aware of a very clear command in the New Testament to dance, unless you're at a Cayley. But over and over and over again, we're commanded to rejoice. So do your colleagues and your neighbors, your friends, know how happy you are to know the Lord? What a privilege you count it to live before him and with him every day. And what about our our life together as a church family? What kind of life do we want this to be together? Is our life together going to be more like a funeral? Or will it be more like a celebratory wedding? You know that God's people are heading for a wedding. You've read the end of the Bible. when the Lord Jesus is finally and fully united with his people, never to be parted. There won't be any somber, glum faces on that day, not around his throne. And we get to practice Every Sunday, ready for that day. Well, the Lord is here. and the Lord is there with you tomorrow, if you're trusting in Christ, at home, school, in the office, wherever. So let's live before the Lord in careful fear and exuberant joy. Let's pray.